are listening to the Innovo Podcast, a ministry of Innovo Vineyard Church in Wichita, Kansas. To learn more about Innovo, you can visit us online at innovovineyard.com. We hope you enjoy this message from God's Word. Well, good morning, y'all. I'll get set up here. Um... Like Greg said, we have been going on a series called Faith is Spelt R-I-S-K. How many of you guys like to take risk? Okay, a few of y'all. <laughs> Matt, you're not sure you're on the fence? Technically, if you've ever driven in rush hour out on Kellogg, you're a risk taker. Uh, oh, yeah, I did. You know, but the rest of you, I'm assuming, are kind of like me. You don't like risk, right? I hate risk. Like, I hate risk with a passion, hate risk. Um, to show you how much I hate risk, you know, do you guys remember the books? Um, oh, what was it? I've forgotten now. The, uh, the, the, the one where the, the Mockingjay, you know what I'm talking about? Hunger Games, Hunger Games, yes, the Hunger Games. I wanted to read it because everybody said, oh, it's such a good book, but I was like, I'm not reading it until I know who dies. So I asked Julie, and she was like, Mom, I can't tell you because then it'll ruin it for you. And I was like, no, you don't understand. I can't read it until I know who dies because I really don't want to risk investing emotionally in a character and then they die. So I made her tell me who died before I ever even started the books, you know. But um, another story about myself to show you how much I absolutely hate risk. Um, back in the early 90s, late 80s, I, we lived in Louisville, Kentucky, and um, I worked for a company that decided to take everybody to Churchill Downs for their company picnic. And, uh, you know, everybody was super excited. Oh, we're going to go to Churchill Downs. Yay. And I was like, and I came home and I told Greg, I was like, yeah, company picnic. They're taking everybody to Churchill Downs. That just really sucks. And he goes, why? It'd be fun. And he goes, wouldn't you, wouldn't you enjoy it? And I was like, well, I'd like kind of hanging out with everybody. That would be fun. And I kind of like to see Churchill Downs because it's sort of historic. But, oh. Horse racing. Ugh. It's just too much risk. I don't, I don't like risk. And, and Greg was like, no, you should go. And I was like, I don't think I will. And he goes, you really should. So he, he talks me into going. And I was like, fine, I'll go. I'm just not betting. And he was like, you, you can't go to a horse race and not bet. You have to bet when you go to a horse race. It's no fun if you don't bet. And so he talks me into to taking some money, because what he said was, he said, you know, if you go to a movie, you pay money, and you come away with nothing, it's the same thing. It's entertainment value. <laughs> and I'm thinking, okay, it's entertainment value. I will take $20, because that's about what I would pay on a movie and maybe some popcorn, because this was a long time ago. Now it's just a movie for 20 bucks. But I, I took $20. He tried to talk me into more. I was like, no, no, it's not happening. And um, as the day approached for us to actually go to the races, I started getting more nervous, you know, kind of like sick at my stomach nervous, because I'm thinking, 
I could lose $20. I'm, I'm risking hard-earned money to, to go to a rent. This is not good. But I thought, you know what? I'm going. I've already said I'm going. I've already said I'm taking $20. This is happening. I just need to figure out a way to where this is not quite so risky. I'd never been to a racetrack before, so I started asking around to people who had been to racetracks. I was like, so when, when you bet on a horse, how do, you, how do you do that? I mean, not like how do you actually bet. I get that. You go up to the window, you pay your money, and that's how you bet. But how do you pick the horse that's going to win? And um, first person I ask goes to the horse track like all the time. And he said, I always go out before each race because they bring the horses up to like a viewing area. And I go out and I look at the horse. I look at all the horses and I look and see, you know, I check their muscles out. I see how lean and sleek they are. And, and I decide which horse looks like it would be the fastest. I was like, that makes sense. I'm going to do that one. I'm going to go out, I'm going to look at those horses. I will choose the one that looks the fastest. I will have no risk on that race. And then the next person I talked to, they said, oh, I just always just look at the trainer because they give you a program, you know, when you get there and you read about the, you know, the horses and who their trainers are. And they said, they tell you how much each trainer has won that year. And I just picked the trainer that's won the most that year. And I was like, oh, that's. That's a good idea, because, you know, a trainer trains the horse, right? You know, they can take a mediocre horse and train it to be good and train it to run fast. I was like, fantastic idea. I'm going to look at those trainers. And then I talked to another lady that I worked with who'd gone to the races a lot, and she said, oh, I always bet on the jockey. I look and see who the jockey is. I figure out which one is the most winning jockey, and I bet on that one. Because you know what? The trainer can train that horse to run fast, but it's the jockey that becomes one with that horse. And they know everything about that horse, and they know when to cause that horse to go fast and when to pull it up and all that. I'm like, that is an excellent idea. I'm going. I am not going to be risky. I'm going to follow my plan. I will look at those horses. I will look at those trainers. I will look at those jockeys, and I will bet, and I will win because I will not be risking. And I go to the track before the first race. Um, you know, there was a few of us that went out and looked at the horses, and they lined them all up, and I went out, and I was looking at them, and I'm like, You know, to me, they kind of all look muscular. <laughs> and there's not like any fat horse, because that would make them run slower, but there's not any emaciated horses, because that would mean they wouldn't have enough energy to run. Nobody's sway back, nobody's knock knee. They kind of all look like they could win. I don't know. I asked the lady next to me, I said, what are we looking at? And she goes, oh, I always pick the gray ones. They're my favorite. And I'm like... Well, that's stupid, you know. Just because they're great doesn't mean they're fast, you know. So I go back in, and I thought, okay, looking at the horses is not helping me. I don't know what I'm looking for, so it's not helping me. I went in, I got my little program out, and I thought, I'm going to pick the best jockey and the best trainer. 
But if you know anything about horse racing, you'll find out that the first race is just kind of a sort of a trial race. You know, they put the new horses in there, and there's no really good jockeys that ride the new horses. So I didn't have a jockey to choose from. I chose from the trainers. And I looked through. I found the trainer that had earned the most money that year, and I was like, okay, fine. I think I can bet on this. And I go up to the window. I pay my little $2, because that's the least amount you can bet. And I was like, I want $2 on this horse. We go out. They bring them all up, get them into the gates, and I'm all ready to cheer. And the bell rings, and they take off, except for my horse. <laughs> my horse was the slowest horse ever getting out of a gate, ever. And I thought, well, that's okay. Maybe this trainer knows that this horse doesn't like other horses around it, so he's going to bring it from behind. I've heard that happening. And they go around the first turn, and he's you know, about 10 lengths behind. I'm thinking, but he could still catch up. They got that whole back stretch. They got that last one. And then that front, that straightaway, we're, we're good, we're good. And I'm screaming for my horse. And he gets down on the back stretch and he catches up some. You know, he's like only seven lengths behind. And he gets into the last corner. He caught up to about five lengths behind. And I'm thinking, this is it. This is where he's making his move. He's going to get down that straightaway. And he's going to pour it on. And he's going to pass that finish line, and I'm going to be a winner. And he got on the straightaway, and he started to fade. He came across dead last. It's like, fine. Betting on the trainer does not work. I'll bet on the jockey. That's my only last strategy. The very next race, I'm looking at all the jockeys, and Pat Day was one of the jockeys. Now, again, if you don't know anything about horse racing, I'm from Louisville, so I know a lot about horse racing <laughs> in a way. You know? But Pat Day at that time was not just the best jockey that year. He was the winningest jockey of all times. I'm like, that's the one to bet on because that's Pat Day. He will win. So I go up, pay my little $2, get my bet on this horse, and we go out, we're watching them, just putting them into the gates. And Pat Day's horse is like skittish. And he's doing this bit, you know, not wanting to get in the gates. And I'm like, that is a good sign. That's a good sign because that horse does not like being in that gate. When they open those gates, he will run. And so they finally get him in the gates. They ring the bell, the gates open. And sure enough, that horse takes off. That horse is flying. He's like 10 lengths ahead of everybody. It goes around the first curve. He's still 10 lengths ahead of everybody. And I'm screaming. I'm like, yeah, yeah, go, go, go. I'm going to win. I'm going to win. And I was all excited. And then go down the back stretch. He's still ahead. I mean, he lost somebody still like nine lengths ahead. He's huge ahead. I mean, he looked like, you know, the derby winner or something. And he, he comes around that last corner, and he's still ahead. I mean, they've closed in some. They're about five lengths behind. And he, he comes down that front stretch, and I'm thinking, right now, it's going to win. It's going to win. And then it was like he had absolutely no more gas. All the other horses went, zoom, 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 right by him. And I'm like, what happened? I was winning. What happened? And he lost. Last, dead last. And I thought, horse racing's stupid. 
I hate horse racing. I came home that day and Greg goes, so how was it? And I was like, it was awful. He goes, what was horrible about it? I was like, I lost. He said, so it was only 20 bucks. I was like, no, I only lost 10, but I was, it was awful. Because you know? I, I just hate risk. I hate it. If I'm going to put my money down on something, I want to know that it's going to come through. If I'm going to do something, I want to kind of know the end before it happens. So when Greg came up with this, hey, I feel like God wants us to, to go through a series called Faith is Spelt R-I-S-K. I went, really? Are you, are you sure? I mean, because couldn't he say faith is spelt victory or faith is spelt not so bad or whatever? Just really risk. Ugh, I hate risk. But I started thinking about it, and I thought, well, if this is what God wants us to learn, I'm going to have to be okay with it. i got to figure this out. So I started doing research, and I thought, there's got to be a way where faith is not quite so scary. Where faith is maybe risky, but not quite so risky. And when I started doing research to look and see, you know, how I could fit it into to that thought, or if God would possibly fit it into that thought, I ran across the verse, Hebrews 11, verse 1. You got that? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of the unseen. And I thought, okay. I can get my arms around this. Because I always thought faith was just kind of what you felt. Or faith was just kind of what you thought. And feelings and thinking and all of that sort of stuff is kind of nebulous. You can't quite get your arms around it. You feel like you're, you're grabbing it and it just kind of slips through your fingers. But when I read that faith is substance, that faith is evidence, I'm like, okay, I can get my arms around that. Because I like, I like to read crime dramas, like detective stories. I love to watch crime dramas on TV. You know, I watch all kinds of crime dramas. I watch American crime dramas. I watch British crime dramas. I watched a French crime drama where I had to read the subtitles. Just because I like crime dramas. And in a crime drama, what is the police or detective always looking for? Evidence. They're looking for footprints. They're looking for tire tracks. They're looking for like little pieces of cloth that's gotten stuck in the window when the person climbed through. They look for DNA. They look for evidence. And out of that evidence, they build their case, right? So if faith is evidence, that's something solid, something real. I started thinking about it, and I thought, so what solid substance thing is faith based on? The first thing I came up with is faith, faith is based on what we know about God or who God is. So just, this is where you guys get to interact 
uh, just tell me what, tell me what is it you know about God? What's one thing you might know about God? He's faithful. He said, I will never leave you or forsake you. He's faithful. He's always there. What else? He's smart. He created the whole universe, right? That takes a lot more smarts than I've got. What else? He's kind. He's kind. He's loving. He's not going to be mean to us. Anything else? Generous. That's my favorite. Generous. It, it, every time it talks about God giving you something, do you realize it always says he generously gives or it says, uh, if any man lacks wisdom, ask a God and he will give, who gives to all men liberally a lot. It also talks about in, was it Malachi or Micah? I get the two books mixed where it says the, the Lord will open the heavens and blessings will pour out, pressed down and overflowing. He's generous. Anything else? Powerful. It says, you know, we read about God being not just making the universe, but he keeps it going, right? He's, uh, is there anything more powerful than God? Nope. He's the most powerful. What else can we know? Well, I came up with some stuff just in case you guys didn't, in case you guys were quiet today. Um, I'm sorry, say it again? He's loving. This is actually one of the first ones I came up with. God loves us. It says in... Um, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not die but have everlasting life. Can you imagine? Can you imagine loving so, someone so much that you would allow your son to die for him? That's some big love. Um, and also, too, when, when we talk about God's love, God's love is shown to us in three different ways. Because he's like th the three-in-one God. There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Did you know he loves us in three different ways? God the Father, he loves us like a really good dad. Um, he's the dad that, that's kind of like my son-in-law. My son-in-law loves to get down on the floor with my grandbaby. And Joe is just like, all over the place. And Tyler will get down on the floor with her, and she'll crawl all over him, and he'll act like he's just laying there, and he'll grab her up, and they'll laugh and giggle. And that's kind of God. He loves to hang out with us. He loves to get on our level and, and just interact with us. That's one of his favorite things. Um, I was talking to somebody today about a dad loving you so much that he's not going to let you do the things that's going to be bad for you. Even if it makes you mad at him. He's that kind of dad. He's going to look for ways to make you the best you can possibly be, even if you don't like it, even if you get mad at him, because he loves you. We have uh, Jesus. 
He loves us in a totally different way. He's still God. There's still one person. But the, the personality of Jesus loves us like a lover. It says that he's the bridegroom. When Greg and I were dating, um, we, we used to go to church a lot when we were dating. You know, that was kind of a date for us. And I kind of got in trouble with one of my professors who went to church and sat behind me because all throughout church I was like I couldn't take my eyes off of him I just thought he was so gorgeous and just so you know and she was like you need to be a paying attention to what's I was like I know he's so good looking you know but I I just loved him I loved being around him I loved interacting and there was just a deep love there and that's the kind of love that Jesus has for us. And the Holy Spirit, he loves us in a totally different way. I kind of, when you look at what the Holy Spirit does, he, he teaches and he uh, intercedes. Doesn't that sound like a mom? Because moms are the ones out there going, here, you got to do this, and they're teaching you. They, you know, moms are usually the ones that teach the kids how to say their first words, how to walk, how to... That's what moms do. They also intercede, you know, with my kids. I'm always going to Greg going, they really need this. They really... We need to do this for them. And he's like, yeah, okay, fine. And not that he didn't care. He just didn't notice. So I'm in there. I'm interceding, telling, hey, this is what they need. This is how we need to do it. I was interceding with her teachers, going to them and going, no, you guys are doing this, but I really expect this happening. And I'm promoting her. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He loves us like a mom. He's in there. He's the one that's always in our corner, always fighting for us. Why? Because he loves us. That's what we know. We know that about God. Um, we talked about he's the maker and sustainer of the earth. He didn't just make the earth and then take off. He made it, and then he said, I'm sticking around to make sure everything works the way it's supposed to. And we talked about that last series. Um, he is the ruler over everything. Last series, we talked about that um, he existed before everything, and he's supreme over all of creation. Everything was made by him and for him. Um, Philippians 2.10 says, at the name of Jesus Every knee will bow. We sang about that today. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. It continues to say in heaven, in earth, and things under the earth. We kind of expect him to be king in heaven because he's God and that's where he lives is in heaven, right? And we're like, okay, I get that you could be king over the earth. But when it comes to things under the earth, the demons and things like that, could he be king of that? Yeah. Now, I know sometimes he'll let things happen, but when he says stop, they can't go any farther. You know, Satan even had to come to God when he wanted to torment Job. And he had to get permission from God before he could do anything. Why? Because God is king. At the name of Jesus, 
every knee will bow. Um, we also know that he's our healer. You'll find in Isaiah 53:5, he was punished to make us whole. His wounds have healed us. When Jesus died on the cross, he died to become our healer. He not only heals us from sin, but he heals us from the effects of sin. That's a truth. That's a fact. Um, got a few other things. He overcame the world. John 16, 33 says, I have told you these things so that in me you can have peace. In this world, you're going to have troubles, but take heart because I've overcome the world. So in other words, any trouble that's happening to you in this whole entire world, guess what? Jesus has overcome that. And he's there. Last one I wrote down was that uh, with God, all things are possible. We look at things in the world and we go, mm, unless some kind of miracle happens, this is not possible. And God goes, yeah, miracles, <laughs> do those every day. All things are possible with me. Those are facts. That's evidence. There's loads more evidence. Where do you think I got all this evidence? The Bible. There's loads more evidence about who God is. You just look through the Bible. I could have gone days talking about who God is, those facts, that substance of who God is. That's where we can place our faith. But we also have to know what God thinks of us. So what do we know about what God thinks of us? Nothing. Okay. That could be a problem. Just saying, because faith is pretty risky if you don't know what you're basing it on. Um, the first thing I know is long before we ever even liked him, he loved us. He came and died for us even when we didn't have the ability to love him. That was first. He loves us that much. When we still hated him, he loved us. That's what he thinks of us. He uh, knows us personally. Luke 12, 7 says, even the very hairs on your head are numbered, so don't be afraid. He knows you that close. Now, I'm, I'm getting older, so my hair's falling out, uh, which is really sad. But I feel like, like every time I shower, God's got to go, oh, shoot, recount. You know? <laughs> but he, he knows me that well. I mean, that well. He, if he knows every hair I have on my head, he knows everything about me. He knows what I think. He knows what I do. He knows how I feel. He knows what's wrong with me. He knows what's right with me. He knows my really good points. He knows my really weaknesses. He knows me that personally. And he knows you that personally. Um, we know that God said that he works all things to, to our good. Romans 8.28 says that he works all things together 
for good for those who love and are called, love, love God and are called according to his purposes. He loves us. He's going to take even the bad stuff that happens in our life and he's going to work it for good. Why? Just because he loves us. Just because he wants what's best for us. Um, and then also in Jeremiah 29, 11, that's one of my favorite verses. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. There are plans for good and not for evil. Plans to prosper you and give you a hope and a future. He has plans for us. He didn't just stick us on the earth and go, have a good time, you know? He's like, here, you're on the earth. I have a plan for you, and this is what's best for your life, and I'm going to work it out to where you follow this plan, and it's going to be great, and you're going to be so happy because you followed the plan because I love you. That's what he thinks about us. And guess what? Your plan's different than my plan. Every person on the earth, he has come up with a different plan, individually selected for them. You know, I work in a school. They have, in schools, they have IEPs, which is Individual Educational Plan. That's what IEP stands for. I had to think about it. It's like God's doing an IEP for every one of us. Well, he's got an IEP for you, and he reviews it every year. You know, Maria, he's got an IEP for you. He's got every, he reviews them. He helps you understand your plan. Why? Because he just loves us. That's what he thinks of us. He thinks of us all the time. He's always got his eye on us. Um, last one that I have is God has given us power and made us his witnesses. Acts 1:18. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the uttermost parts of the earth. He tells us to go out and be his witnesses, but here's the deal. He says, go out and be his witnesses. I'm giving you the Holy Spirit, which is actually just me. Not me, but God, you know, living in us. So I'm going to ask you to go out and be my witnesses. And guess what? I'm going to be with you the whole entire time. And I'm always going to be telling you what to say and how to do this. And, and so you won't have to go out there and go, um, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. He's going to say, it's okay. You've got the power. Because you have me living in you, and I'm going to give you the words, and I'm going to give you the things to do and the things to say so that you, when you follow what I'm telling you to, you're just doing what I told you. I'm going to back it up because I'm the one that's got the power. There's plenty more things that you could find that God thinks of you. This is, this is evidence. This is substance. So when you're looking at faith and you're going, I need to build this on some evidence other than just how I feel. Because you know how I feel? It changes from day to day. Some days I'm really confident, and I can go out and go, I feel this way. And other days I'm like, mm -hmm, no, I don't. But if I have evidence to go, you know what? It doesn't matter how I feel. I know this is evidence. I know this is who God is. I know this is how he thinks of me. And guess what? If he thinks of you that way, he also thinks of the person next to you that way. And he thinks of the person on your street that way. And the person you don't know that way, 
because he thinks of each one of us individually and he loves each of us. And we can base our faith on this evidence. So what does that mean? Does that mean that we can pray for anything and get it? I mean, we could have the evidence here. Does that mean that we can just pray and get it? Right? Well, not exactly. Because if that were true, well, actually, let me just ask you this. Have you ever prayed for somebody? You prayed that maybe they get well and they just didn't? Because I have. I prayed for somebody... I prayed for Greg's mom. Greg's mom had cancer. And when she was diagnosed with cancer, we, we gathered around her and prayed. Greg's mom loved God. Greg's mom was a huge part of his dad's ministry. She led so many people to the Lord. And we just knew. We knew God was a healer. We knew that God loved her. We just knew that when we prayed for her, God was going to heal her. And guess what? She died. What was up with that? Did it, did it change the fact that God loves her? No, God still loved her. Did it change the fact that God was a healer? No, he's still a healer. Well, maybe it was us. Maybe it was us. Maybe, maybe if we had just had more faith. You know what I'm talking about? You've heard people say, well, you know, if you just had more faith, God would come through with you. But that's not true. You know why that's not true? Because if that were true, then that would make God not God, and we would be God. Because it would all depend on us. And God would just be our genie, where we just rub the little lamp and he pops out and we go, Master, what do you want? And I want them healed. Yes, Master. You know, rub the lamp. What do you want? I want a million dollars. Yes, Master. That's not how God is. God is God. God has the right to say yes or no or whatever. God is that. We are not. So how does faith come into this? It's how we pray. We have to pray with faith. But there are two different ways you can pray with faith. And I didn't realize this until I started looking at this. There are two different ways you can pray with faith. The first way is you pray with faith when God has told you what the outcome would be. Um, an example of this would be Elijah. Um, you know, in James it talks about Elijah is a man or was a man just like us, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it didn't rain for three and a half years. So does that mean Elijah just has a whole lot of faith? No, God told Elijah what to say. God told Elijah, it's not going to rain. And the reason why I know God told Elijah that it's not going to rain is because he went to Ahab, the king, and said, until I pray for it, it's not raining. And then, this is back in 1 Kings, like 17 and 18. 17, he goes in and says, 
It's not raining until I say so. And Ahab could have killed him. Like immediately, he could have said, off with his head, killed him. But he didn't. And Elijah knew that Ahab could have killed him. He's not going to go into Ahab and say, it is not going to rain. A hope. He went in and said, it's not going to rain because God told me it's not going to rain. And then like back in 18, the next chapter, God says, okay, now I want you to go to him and tell him it's going to rain. If God told him to tell him it's going to rain, he also probably told him to tell him it's not going to rain. Elijah knew what the outcome was, would be. So when Elijah prayed, Elijah could pray with confidence. Elijah said, it's not going to rain. I'm stating this to Ahab, and I'm praying earnestly that it's not going to rain. You know, if I were Elijah, though, I have to say, I would pray earnestly also. If I told Ahab it wasn't going to rain, because I'd be like, please, God, don't let it be wrong. You know, because <laughs> I'll die. But <laughs> he prayed earnestly, and it didn't rain. But God had told him what the outcome was going to be. That's one way of praying. If God tells you what the outcome can be, will be, then you can state, God, do this, because you said you'd do it. But sometimes, God would just tell you to do things, and he hasn't told you what the outcome would be. Like he might say, pray for the person next to you. They're sick. And you're like, so? So does that mean you're going to heal them? Maybe, maybe not, but he said, pray. There's an example, well, a couple of examples of that in the Bible. The first one is uh, the leper who came to Jesus, and he said, if you are willing, you can heal me. He didn't come out and say, heal me. You've healed everybody else, heal me. That's not what he said. He just went to him and said, you know, if you're willing, heal me. The statement, if you're willing, heal me, basically said, I know you're God. I know you can heal. I know you have healed. I know you see me. Please heal me. But if you don't want to, I understand. It's basically what he said. Was that any less of a prayer of faith? No. You know what happened? Jesus healed him. But there's also examples in the Bible where people have prayed and it hasn't happened. Look at Paul. In 2 Corinthians, Paul said, you know, I, he talked about having a thorn in the flesh and he called it a messenger of Satan. We don't know what the thorn was. We just know it was there. And he called it, Paul called it a messenger of Satan. He said, I begged God three times to take this away from me. And you would think this is like a slam dunk, right? This is, this is Paul. This is the guy who wrote like half the New Testament, you know? This is the guy who is going out and he's being beaten for Christ and he's, he's been stoned for Christ and he's out constantly witnessing for Christ. He's God's messenger here on earth. 
So, you know, he's, he's got faith, right? It's not like he's not got a lot of faith. He's got faith. He's out there doing it. And then he also says that this thorn in the flesh is a messenger of Satan. So we know that Satan is at work here. So you'd think God would go, he's working for me. This is Satan coming against him. I need to get rid of it. It's not what he said. When Paul begged three times, finally God just said, no. And I know that, that Paul heard this. This isn't like Paul prayed three times and went, well, I guess God's not going to do it. God, God told Paul no. And the reason why I know he told him no is he said, Paul said, he said no, but it, God said, my grace is sufficient for you. Because in weakness, my power is made strong. And then Paul goes on to say, well, so I'm going to boast in my weaknesses so that Christ's power can be shown. Now, I'm not saying that if you're praying for something and you're asking and God hasn't told you the answer to it, that you need to just pray three times and then you're done. Paul stopped because God said no. If God doesn't say no, you keep praying. But there was a humility in Paul accepting the answer. That's a prayer of faith still. Because Paul said, you know what? I know that you're not, that you're God, and I'm not. Paul said, you have the right to say no, even though this is a messenger from Satan. You have that right. But when you say no, I can go back and base it on, I know you love me. It's not like you hate me. I'm not the, the child that you had, but you, and you like all the others better, and you don't like me. That's not what you're saying. God, I know you're saying that you love me. And there's something good going to come out of this. And if there's going to be something good come out of this, and you're going to get glory, I can be okay with that. That's humility. Is faith risky? Yeah. I'd like to say no. I really, really like to say no because I hate risk. Is faith risky? Yeah. But if you base it on what you know about God, it's not as risky. You can still lose things. But what you lose is not going to compare to what you gain. What you gain is so much more than what you would ever lose. You know, Greg told you last week about going into the ministry and how scary it was. And yeah, it was scary. You know, because we were making a lot of money. Uh, we had planned that we were going to retire by 55. So if that had come through, I'd be retired now. Just saying. Uh, you know. But it was, and it was scary to do that. But for me, it wasn't super scary. Because I was looking at the pay cut. You know, we knew we were taking a 50% pay cut. But, you know, I grew up with not a lot of money. So I'm looking at going, well, okay, 
So I will economize here, and I will economize there, and I will clip coupons, and I will go to the stores that you can get the, the cheap, and it's going to be great. I mean, we're going to be following God. There's a comfort level there. I know that we're going to be fine. That one wasn't quite as scary as when Greg came home and said, I think God's saying, start your own church. That one was scary. Because where before I had a, a guaranteed income, I mean, it was less, it was 50% less, but I could, I could, you know, economize and we'd be fine with that. When he said, I'm going to start my own church, I'm like, so what happens if nobody comes? Or what happens if we get a whole bunch of people come and nobody gives any money? Because if they don't give any money, you can't get paid. And then if you don't get paid, we can't live on my salary. And I looked at our house. We'd been in our house less than a year. And I'm thinking, we could lose this. I could be homeless. This is scary. We just bought a car. I could lose my car because there's no way I can pay for even one of these on my salary. At the time, he didn't work for the post office. And it was scary. It was terrifying to me. But what did I do? I went back to evidence. I went back to, you know what? When we went into the ministry, God took care of us. He supplied everything when we went into the ministry. And if this is God calling him to start a church, then I know that he will come through. Now, I have to say, I didn't go into it as happily as I probably should have. Because when Greg came home and said, God's calling me to start a church, I went, fine, then he's going to have to pay for it. <laughs> it was kind of my attitude towards it, which was not right. But I knew enough to say, I know that God is good. I know that God always pays for the things he asks for. I can base it on that evidence. It was still scary, and I still could have lost my house. I didn't, but I could have. There was still a risk. So here's the thing. God is asking us to take risk. He doesn't just say, Greg, Mary, you're in charge of this church, so I'm going to make you take risk. God asks each one of us to take a risk every single day. He says to take up your cross daily. Not monthly, not weekly, not yearly, daily. Take up your cross daily and follow me. What does that mean? It means he's asking you to take a risk every day. Every day. But he gives you evidence to base that risk on. What risk is God asking you to do today? Is he asking you to pray for somebody? Maybe the person sitting next to you. Maybe he's uh, asking you to pray for the person down the street. 
Like actually go to them and pray for them, not just sitting here and praying. Is he asking you, is he asking you to ask for prayer? That's almost more scary than praying for somebody. Because to ask for prayer means that you have to now become vulnerable and tell people what's going on with you. And you've kept it all hidden. And maybe God's saying, I want you just to step out in faith and ask for prayer. Greg talked about we're going to start having for uh, after the service if people need prayer for healing. It says in James that if you are sick, to, to go to the elders and they will anoint you with oil and pray for you. And that's how the sick get healed. It says it. It's a truth. So maybe God's asking you to step out in faith and ask for prayer. Maybe he's asking you to pray. Maybe he's asking you to ask for prayer. Maybe it's something bigger. Maybe he's asking you to go into the ministry. Been there, done that, bought the t-shirt. It's scary. But when he does ask you, you can know he's right there with you. Maybe he's asking you to go on missions. I don't know what he's asking you, but he is asking you to do a risk today. So I'd like to take just a moment. Let's just sit quietly. If you want to close your eyes so you can not be paying attention to what's going on around, go ahead and do it. I just want you to ask God, what risk are you asking me to do today? get anything? If you didn't, continue to ask. He's speaking to us. He's speaking to us always. He's presenting challenges to us. He will always present those to us. It might even just be the challenge to step across the line and start a relationship with him. If you don't have that, that's a, that's a pretty big risk. but you can bank on the fact that he loves you. You can bank on the fact that when he died on the cross, he took your sins, and all you got to do is accept the gift. That's it. 